Welcome back to Will Write Catholic. Today we're looking at part two of Deus Caritas Est by Pope Benedict. Now in part one, Pope Benedict talks about what is love, like like specifically, philosophically, theologically, what is the love of God and how does that inform human love. And in the second part, what we're looking at today, he's going to get into the concrete. How do we live out love? How does the church live out love? So if you haven't listened to part one, I highly recommend going back and listening to part one. Uh, in fact, if this is your first time joining us, welcome. It's wonderful to have you with us. And uh, I, I'd invite you to please go through back through the uh, articles and on Substack and then also back on the podcast episodes and uh, listen to a few more and feel free to give me some feedback. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you uh, maybe want to challenge. I'm fine with that. I can handle it. Uh, And, uh, you know, let's have a conversation. So you can email me at will.write.catholic at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your feedback, even if it's just to say, hey, you know, I'm really getting a lot out of these. I enjoy it. Uh, or like I said, if you have a question, a comment, maybe some confusion that I can try to clear up, whatever it is, I'm here to help uh, and here to answer your questions and here to have a dialogue or a conversation or even a good argument occasionally. So uh, anyway, feel free to reach out. Also, if you've been enjoying the podcast or the Substack, I'd ask you to please share it with your friends and family on social media. Uh, I really rely on that to to help me grow the channel and uh to reach more people, because it seems like this has been a, a good thing for a lot of folks. I'm getting a lot of great feedback uh, that people are enjoying the the commentary that I'm making, the the catechesis that I'm giving, uh, and so thanks be to God for that. I mean, I, I'm doing it to to give to you what I've been given. Uh, one of my favorite of, uh, ideas of evangelization is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And so I don't think I'm really offering anything too remarkable that's mine. Uh, But what I'm giving you, hopefully, uh, faithfully, is absolutely remarkable. It's it's truth. It's reality. Right? It's something that that really matters. And uh, today is is no divergence from that. Right? We're looking at part two of Deus Caritas Est by Pope Benedict XVI. And so, without further ado, let's begin. So now that the concept of love, the the exploration of the concept of love is finished, Pope Benedict turns his attention to the concrete. We've answered what love is, but now we see how love is lived. Part two begins by speaking of the church's charitable activity as a manifestation of Trinitarian love. Concretely, there's nothing more real than the Blessed Trinity, the Godhead is a unity of three divine persons who are in a community of life and love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, when we talk about the Trinity, we can get very easily sucked into heresies of all different sorts. And I'm not trying to go too deeply into Trinitarian theology at this point, um, but suffice it to say, I'll I'll just leave us with this in terms of the Trinity. The Father eternally begets and loves the Son, the perfect self-image of the Father, who eternally reflects that perfect love back to the Father. And the love outpoured eternally between Father and the Son is the person of the Holy Spirit proceeding from each eternally. 
Now, if nothing I said makes any sense, that's okay. Basically, what I'm what I'm trying to start us out with is what is the Trinity? Well, the Trinity is God. We can say, who are you, God? And he'll say, I am Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we'll say, what are you, God? And he'll say, I am God. Right? Trinitarian theology is remarkably complicated. It's nuanced. Uh, because it's the mystery of God as he is, right? There, there's nothing more profound. There's nothing more infinite and amazing than God himself as Trinity. In mystery, though it is, God is the source of all as Trinity. And so how can we recognize the Trinity? Well, Pope, the Pope quotes St. Augustine in saying, if you see charity, right, love, you see the Trinity, now, God created all things, seen and unseen, in a plan of sheer loving goodness. When God sent his son to assume our humanity, he invited us in love to share in his divinity. And we can say that the mystery of the church is drawing of men into the mystery of God. Right? The father wishes to make humanity a single family in his son, says the Pope in paragraph 19. And he does this through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, who the Pope speaks of as, quote, the energy which transforms the heart of the ecclesial community so that it becomes a witness before the world to the love of the Father. Gathering all men to himself as the church, the Father seeks the integral good of man, to use the expression of the Pope. In the seeking of our good, the Pope says, is an expression of love in the entire activity of the church. By his word and the sacraments, the church shares the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. And what greater love can we possibly share with our fellow man than the work of evangelization? Right? right? It's, it's like I said at the top of the show. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And so this outward act of evangelization doesn't end with the spiritual. It's not merely spiritual. It's also corporal. Charity is a responsibility of the whole church, clergy, religious, laity. And from the beginning, Jesus Christ established the church upon four pillars, which he outlines in Acts 2.42. In sacred scripture in Acts 2.42, we read this, talking about the early church. They devoted themselves... So whatever, whatever the early church devoted themselves to, we should pay attention, right? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Right? These four pillars given to us in Acts 2.42 give structure to the church in every age. And they're reflected in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, as well as in the Catechism of the Catholic Church from the 1990s. The apostolic teaching is doctrine. That's number one. Number two, fellowship, also translated sometimes as communal life, is the moral life in Christ. What is right? What is wrong? How do we interact with our fellow man? Number three, the breaking of the bread is the early term for the Eucharist and for the sacraments generally. And then fourth, prayer is specifically Christian prayer, perfectly expressed in the Our Father, which our Lord gave us. And Pope Benedict gives attention in paragraph 20 of Deus Caritas S to this idea of fellowship, communion, or communal life, however we want to translate it. And the Greek word in Acts is actually koinonia, 
K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, koinonia. In koinonia, the Pope says, consists in the fact that believers hold all things in common and that among them there is no longer any distinction between rich and poor. And this sort of radical communal life is part and parcel of early Christianity. But as the Pope remarks, he says, as the church grew, this radical form of material communion could not, in fact, be preserved, but its essential core remained. Within the community of believers, there can never be room for a poverty that denies anyone what is needed for a dignified life. So when it became necessary in history, um, the church instituted the clerical office of the diaconate. Right, this first level of participation in the priesthood of Jesus Christ and the lowest level of the sacrament of holy orders. A diakonos was historically a servant of the king. Right? So when we think deacon, we should be thinking servant. And so the deacon is the servant of Christ the king and his vicar in a particular diocese that is the bishop. Right? They are to provide for the spiritual and corporal needs of the people. Or as Pope Benedict puts it, he says, the social which they were meant to provide was absolutely concrete. Yet at the same time, it was also a spiritual service. Theirs was a truly spiritual office, which carried out an essential responsibility of the church, namely a well-ordered, well-ordered love of neighbor. Now, this system of charity must have been a formidable force in the ancient world because the Roman leader, Julian the Apostate, who rejected Christianity and tried to instantiate Neoplatonic Hellenism, told his pagan priests that they needed to imitate and outdo the church's charity. And of course, they failed because imitation can never capture what is authentically of God. Now, beyond the diaconate, the proclamation of the good news and the liturgy were indispensable to the church. And as the Pope puts it, he says, the church's deepest nature is expressed in her threefold responsibility of proclaiming the word of God, which he calls in Greek, kerygma materia, celebrating the sacraments, liturgia, and exercising the ministry of charity, diaconia, diaconia. And these duties presuppose each other and are inseparable. So though the church is now worldwide and the radical form of community of the early church is less possible, the church is nonetheless responsible for her members. Right? The needs of the people of God are not only spiritual. We're humans. We need things like food and shelter and water. And like any family, the church is obliged to care for the necessities of those in the church in a particular way. As Benedict says, the church is God's family in the world. In this family, no one ought to go without the necessities of life. Without in any way detracting from this commandment of universal love, the church also has a, has a specific responsibility. Within the ecclesial family, no member should suffer through being in need. So very clearly, the Pope is saying that even though we have a universal duty to our fellow man, we have a specific duty to those members of the church. After concluding the section on the responsibility of charity in the church, the Pope moves on to a fairly expansive conversation of justice and charity. Rooted deeply in Catholic social teaching, expounded since Pope Leo XIII especially, Pope Benedict begins by addressing the elephant in the room, Karl Marx. 
See, since the 19th century, Marxists have critiqued the church, saying that the poor do not need charity, but justice. And Benedict offers really a steel man explanation of the Marxist critique, the, the sort of opposite of the straw man, right? The, the best possible argument. He says this in paragraph 26. He says, works of charity, almsgiving, are in effect a way for the rich to shirk their obligation to work for justice and a means of soothing their consciences while preserving their own status and robbing the poor of their rights. Instead of contributing through individual works of charity to maintaining the status quo, we need to build a just social order in which all receive their share of the world's goods and no longer have to depend on charity. Now, after he lays this out, he admits that there's some, arg- some merit to the argument, but he says there's much that's mistaken. Historically, capital became concentrated in the hands of a powerful few, and there has been conflict between employer and laborer. But rather than succumbing to this Hegelian notion of a a thesis and an antithesis which fight it out to create a new synthesis, which Marx put forward as class warfare and revolution as something that was necessarily going to happen— The Pope offers that Catholic social teaching is applicable beyond the confines of the church. He says this, he said, Marxism had seen world revolution and its preliminaries as the panacea for the social problem. Revolution and the subsequent collectivization of the means of production, so it was claimed, would immediately change things for the better. This illusion has vanished. In today's complex situation, the Pope goes on to say, not least because of the growth of a globalized economy, the church's social doctrine has become a set of fundamental guidelines, offering approaches that are valid even beyond the confines of the church. In the face of ongoing developments, these guidelines need to be addressed in the context of dialogue with all those seriously concerned for humanity and for the world in which we live. Now, the church and the world has a necessary commitment to justice and the ministry of charity. There's no dichotomy between justice and charity. Both are necessary. First, the just ordering of society and the state is the central responsibility of politics, says the Pope. Quoting St. Augustine, he says, A state which is not governed according to justice would be just a bunch of thieves. And even venturing into the subject of freedom of religion in the state, Paul Benedict says that the state may not impose religion, yet it must guarantee religious freedom and harmony between the followers of different religions. For her part, the church, as the social expression of Christian faith, has a proper independence and is structured on the basis of her faith as a community which the state must recognize. The two spheres are distinct yet always interrelated. In other words, the state cannot coerce the church. Rather, the church is independent of the state, but interrelated with the state. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be talking a lot more about this uh, in uh, a couple months. I plan on talking about what exactly does the church mean by freedom of religion and how does that work with our American notion of the separation of church and state. But anyway, back to Deus Caritas Est. We can, we can think about it like this, though, for now. What faithful Catholic can switch off their Catholicism when they engage in matters of politics in the state? 
It, it, they can't. It doesn't make any sense. Only unfaithful Catholics attempt this, which results in deadly scandal and sin. And why is this? Right? It's because God is the lawgiver. He alone created all that is, and he alone is the arbiter of morality. Now, justice is the aim of politics, properly understood, and it's the criteria for good politics. Politics is not merely about rules governing public life. Its origin and its goal, say the Pope, are found in justice, which by its very nature has to do with ethics. Right, if justice is the aim and internal criterion of politics, as Benedict says, then why do Catholics need anything beyond reason? Why is faith necessary for true justice? Benedict explains. It says, faith, by its specific nature, is an encounter with the living God, an encounter opening up new horizons extending beyond the sphere of reason. But it's also a purifying force for reason itself. From God's standpoint, faith liberates reason from its blind spots and therefore helps it to be ever more fully itself. Faith enables reason to do its work more effectively and to see its proper object more clearly. Its aim is simply to help purify reason and to contribute here and now to the acknowledgement and attainment of what is just. So if faith is necessary, then is the Pope calling on the church to engage directly in matters of state? Well, not quite. A just social and civil order is ordered towards each person receiving his or her due, which is an essential task in every generation. But it's a political task, and therefore is a human responsibility rather than an ecclesial responsibility. The church can help to purify our powers of reason and provide ethical formation— Benedict also says this clearly, he says, the church cannot and must not take upon herself the political battle to bring about the most just society possible. She cannot and must not replace the state. Yet at the same time, she cannot and must not remain on the sidelines in the fight for justice. And and so what does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with this idea, this this teaching of the church laid out very clearly in the Second Vatican Council that the clergy are called to sanctify the laity, and the laity are sent out into the world to sanctify the temporal order and be engaged in politics. And even in the best, most just societies, love will always be necessary. Care and concern for the other will always happen best on the local level. This is the principle of subsidiarity, which holds that the best decisions are made on the lowest possible level and the highest level necessary. Again, the principle of subsidiarity, and this is huge. If you haven't heard this before, get ready to have your life changed. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's one of the most fundamental teachings of the church and social teaching. Principle of subsidiarity holds that the best decisions are made on the lowest possible level in the highest level necessary. In fact, a lot of injustices can stem from a higher level claiming authority over something which in fact belongs naturally to someone personally closer to the situation. And against totalitarianism of this kind, Benedict writes beautifully of the bigger, complicated picture. He says this, We do not need a state which regulates and controls everything, 
but a state which, in accordance with the principle of subsidiarity, generously acknowledges and supports initiatives arising from the different social forces and combines spontaneity with closeness to those in need. The church is one of those living forces. She is alive with the love enkindled by the Spirit of Christ. This love does not simply offer people material help, but refreshment and care for their souls, something which is often is even more necessary than material support. In the end, the claim that just social structures would make works of charity superfluous masks a materialist conception of man, the mistaken notion that man can live by bread alone, a conviction that demeans man and ultimately disregards all that is specifically human. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the clergy are called to sanctify the laity, and the laity are sent out into the world to sanctify the temporal order. And in this way, the Pope says this. He says, the direct duty to work for a just ordering of society, on the other hand, is proper to the lay faithful. As citizens of the state, they are called to take part in public life in a personal capacity. The mission of the lay faithful is therefore to configure social life correctly, respecting its legitimate autonomy and cooperating with other citizens according to their respective competences and fulfilling their own responsibility. Now, the church, he says, of course, still sponsors organizations which practice charity, but this isn't merely an activity of justice because it's focused on the admixture of the love of God, which is a universal human need. Benedict puts it this way. He says, the church's charitable organizations, on the other hand, constitute an opus proprium, a task agreeable to her, in which she does not cooperate collaterally but acts as a subject with direct responsibility, doing what corresponds to her nature. The church can never be exempted from practicing charity as an organized activity of believers. And on the other hand, there will be a situation, there will never be a situation where the charity of each individual Christian is unnecessary. Because in addition to justice, man needs and will always need love. So moving on from that section, because there's never going to be a situation where individual Christians are unneeded in charitable service, Pope Benedict recognizes the social context of the present day. Long since gone is the time of Christendom when when Christian kingdoms ruled. Now there's many different types of governments, NGOs, organizations, nonprofits, social structures, even our way of communicating with each other is different now in a lot of different ways. As Pope, as the Pope says, mass communication has narrowed the distance between peoples and cultures. Now, despite this narrowing of the distance, there's still work to be done in making sure that no one's forgotten. These groups are diverse, but they are all equally marked. They all are marked with the love of God. The Pope remarks that Numerous organizations have arisen that are a cooperation of state and church. But these agencies, the Pope says, still have a Christian quality. Now, this Christian quality isn't some vague echo of the love of Jesus Christ of 2,000 years ago. Rather, it's the direct result of church agencies cooperating with state agencies. And so if we had, uh, like the current... um, milieu of our culture, this, this radical separation between church and state, all of that charitable activity would cease. 
right? That Christian quality of the cooperation between state and church would cease. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not a world that I would like to live in. Anyway, back to the Pope. Due to the growing amount of leisure time afforded to modern man, especially among the youth, the Pope says this. He says, quote, our time has also seen a growth and spread of different kinds of volunteer work, which assume responsibility for providing a variety of services, end quote. Now, what's clear is that there's a myriad of ways to get involved. However, love compels us to leave the sidelines and get in the game. This is the important thing for us to draw out here. We can't simply sit idly by. We have to be engaged in this work in some way personally. Right? Even in the, I shouldn't say even in the, but in the non-Catholic churches and ecclesial communities like Protestant churches, um, quote unquote, the church calls them ecclesial communities because a church, properly speaking, has to have holy orders in the Eucharist. Right? So the church has started using ecclesial communities to describe Protestant uh what would we call colloquially Protestant churches are ecclesial communities. Anyway, um, there's also been a new rising of charitable activity with new life and energy, the Pope says, in these non-Catholic churches and ecclesial communities. And the Catholic Church must have a readiness, Pope Benedict says, to cooperate with the charitable agencies of these churches and communities, since we all have the same fundamental motivation and look towards the same goal, a true humanism, which acknowledges that man is made in the image of God and wants to help him live in a way consonant with that dignity. Now, ideally, all Christians, all people of good work, goodwill, would work with a united voice to inculcate, as Pope Benedict says, quoting St. John Paul II in Unum Sint, respect for the rights and needs of everyone, especially the poor, the lowly, and the defenseless. Right When we're engaged in pro-life work, for example, and protecting the lives of the unborn, or stopping the scourge of euthanasia, it does not matter who is next to us working in this fight. We, we work with them, whether it's the atheist, the agnostic, the Muslim, the Buddhist, the Christian, the Catholic, the Protestant, whatever Orthodox, we work together. Because when it comes to serving uh, the poor, the lowly, the defenseless, making sure that they have respect for their rights and their needs, we do so in the name of Jesus Christ, and we do that unabashedly, but we still work with whoever is willing to, in good faith, work with us. Now, after speaking of the interplay of church and state cooperations and looking at how uh, non-Christian churches and ecclesial communities are part of this, Pope Benedict turns his attention to the distinctiveness of the church's charitable activity, the Catholic Church's charitable activity. And the pontiff explains that there's a few essential elements of Christian and ecclesial charity. First, he says, there must be a simple response to immediate needs in specific situations. Second, and related to that first, resources and personnel needed for the work must be provided. Though Pope Benedict doesn't really mention subsidiarity here by name, I think it's still worth mentioning again. Right? Subsidiarity is the principle of Catholic social teaching, which says that the best decision is made at the highest level necessary and the lowest level possible. And why leave a decision best left to the local parish, to the Vatican, for example? 
Right? The local communities all need to strive to care for those in their immediate vicinity, and they're the best ones poised to actually do the work. Third, the third essential element of Christian and ecclesial charity is that individuals who care for those in need must be professionally competent and properly trained. As the Pope explains, we're dealing with human beings, and human beings always need something more than technically proper care. They need humanity. They need heartfelt concern. Those who work for the church's charitable organizations must be distinguished by the fact that they do not merely meet the needs of the moment, but they dedicate themselves to others with heartfelt concern, enabling them to experience the richness of their humanity. Consequently, in addition to their necessary professional training, these charity workers need a formation of the heart, the Pope says. They need to be led to that encounter with God in Christ, which awakens their love and opens their spirit to others. As a result, love of neighbor will no longer be for them a commandment imposed, so to speak, from without, but a consequence deriving from their faith, a faith which becomes active through love. The fourth essential element is that Christian charitable activity must be independent of parties and ideologies. Charitable activity is not a useful means to a longer end goal. It's not done to change the world ideologically, nor is it, as the Pope says, at the service of worldly stratagems, but is a way of making present here and now the love which man always needs. Because as a church of Christ, we're not a church of causes. We have to follow the program of Jesus, to use the the terms of the Pope, which is, as he says, a heart which sees. He continues, this heart sees where love is needed and acts accordingly. Obviously, when charitable activity is carried out by the church as a communitarian initiative, the spontaneity of individuals must be combined with planning, foresight, and cooperation with other similar institutions. Fifth and finally, charity cannot be used as a means of engaging in proselytism. Pope Benedict clearly says that love is free. It's not practiced as a way of achieving other ends. But this does not mean that charitable activity must somehow leave God and Christ aside, for it's always concerned with the whole man. Often the deepest cause of suffering, the Pope says, is the very absence of God. A Christian knows when it's time to speak of God and when it's better to say nothing and to let love alone speak. Having given these five essential elements of Christian charity, who, then, is responsible for the church's charitable activity? Charity is is such a deep action of the church that it's part of her identity. So those responsible for charitable activity are really the whole church, right? Bishops, priests, deacons, lay, religious. And in regard to bishops, Pope Benedict says the following. He says, in the rite of Episcopal ordination, so when a man becomes a bishop, when he's ordained a bishop, prior to the act of consecration itself, the candidate must respond to several questions which express the essential elements of his office and recall the duties of his future ministry. He promises expressly to be in the Lord's name, welcoming and merciful to the poor and to all those in need of consolation and assistance. 
the code of canon law and the canons on the ministry of the bishop does not expressly mention charity as a specific sector of Episcopal activity, but speaks in general terms of the bishop's responsibility for coordinating the different works of the apostolate with due regard for their proper character. Now he goes on to say once again that, that no one's off the hook from doing charitable activity. Okay, he doesn't quite put it that way, but he says this. With regard to the personnel who carry out the church's charitable activity on the practical level, the essential has already been said. They must not be inspired by ideologies aimed at improving the world, but should rather be guided by the faith which works through love. Consequently, more than anything, they must be persons moved by Christ's love, persons whose hearts Christ has conquered with his love, awakening within them a love of neighbor. Now, of course, it's, it's always the love of Christ which marks our meritorious work. Charity inflames us to do good in and through Christ, apart from whom we can do nothing of true merit. Christ came to redeem the whole world, and God loves each man and each woman. Interior openness to Christ and his love is what makes the service of Christ's disciples so distinctive. St. Paul's hymn of charity, hymn to charity rather, in 1 Corinthians 13, teaches us that service is more than activity alone. He says, if I gave away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Pope Benedict refers to this hymn as, as he calls it the Magna Carta of all ecclesial service. And he also calls it the summary of all the reflections on love, which he offers in Deus Caritas Est. If I gave away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. He goes on to say, practical activity will always be insufficient unless it visibly expresses a love for man, a love nourished by the encounter with Jesus Christ. My deep personal sharing in the needs and sufferings of others becomes a sharing of my very self with them. If my gift is not to prove a source of humiliation, I must give to others not only something that is my own, but my very self. I must be personally present in my gift. When we serve in this self-giving way, we learn humility and we grow in humility. As Pope Benedict beautifully reminds us, he says, we recognize that we are not acting on the basis of any superiority or greater personal efficiency, but because the Lord has graciously enabled us to do so. We offer him our service only to the extent that we can and for as long as he grants us the strength. To do all we can with what strength we have, however, is the task which keeps the good servant of Jesus Christ always at work. As St. Paul says in the letter, second letter to the Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ urges us on. And so urged on by the love of Christ, it's easy to lose balance. When we consider the immensity of others' needs, we can on the one hand, Pope Benedict says, be driven towards an ideology that would aim at doing what God's governance of the world apparently cannot, fully resolving every problem. Or we can be tempted to give in to inertia, since it would seem that in any event, nothing can be accomplished. So how can we overcome these two temptations? How can we find balance and keep the seesaw from tipping completely one way or the other? Well, Pope Benedict continues, 
At such times, a living relationship with Christ is decisive if we are to keep on the right path. Without falling into an arrogant contempt for man, something not only unconstructive but actually destructive, or surrendering to a resignation which would prevent us from being guided by love in the service of others. Prayer as a means of drawing ever new strength from Christ is concretely and urgently needed. People who pray are not wasting their time, the Pope says, even though the situation appears desperate and seems to call for action alone. And so a prayer, prayer is vital if we're to live in and with God. This is what we mean when we say a personal relationship with God. Right? Prayer is our lifeblood. Our entire life can become a prayer if continually drawn deeply from the well of Christ. With the scourge of secularism prowling and the misguided extreme arm of activism, Christians are engaged in charitable work. Prayer is the antidote to this worldly spirit. A personal relationship with our loving Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit is utterly necessary. Pope Benedict puts it this way. He says, clearly the Christian who prays does not claim to be able to change God's plans or correct what he has foreseen. Rather, he seeks an encounter with the father of Jesus Christ, asking God to be present with the consolation of the spirit to him and his work. And this personal relationship with God is all the more necessary for us in the midst of the problem of evil, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? We don't know the answer. Only God knows. We know that he brings a good out of it, even in the midst of that. And we can often experience, though, bewilderment, even if we trust. And we'll fail to see, fail to understand the world around us, the things that we're seeing. And in these moments, the Pope says this. He says, Christians continue to believe in the goodness and loving kindness of God. Immersed, like everyone else. In the dramatic complexity of historical events, they remain unshakably certain that God is our Father and loves us, even when His silence remains incomprehensible. And in the midst of darkness, we trust in the love of God, which surpasses all understanding. The theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, God's own life, have been instilled in our soul through the gift of baptism. And these theological virtues go together, right? Pope Benedict teaches us, he says, hope is practiced through the virtue of patience, which continues to do good even in the face of apparent failure. And through the virtue of humility, which accepts God's mystery and trusts him even at times of darkness. Faith tells us that God has given his son for our sake and gives us the victorious certainty that is, it is really true. God is love. It thus transforms our impatience and our doubts into the sure hope that God holds the world in his hands. And then as the dramatic imagery of the end of the book of Revelation points out, in spite of all darkness, he ultimately triumphs in glory. Gosh, sorry guys. Uh, I'm not even going to edit this out. I am moved. I am moved by this because Pope Benedict, when he writes, he is writing from his heart and his mind. And it's so beautiful. It's like St. Augustine. There's that picture of St. Augustine, the light coming through the window and hitting his, his heart. And his, that's going to his pen as he's writing. And it's so beautiful. 
when Pope Benedict just shows us his own heart and his love for Jesus Christ and how this, this beautiful symphony of hope and faith and charity work together, God's own life dwelling within us to, to guide us through, no matter what's going on, whether it's good things in our lives or bad things, God is present. He is a father to us in the mediation of Jesus Christ, inflamed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. We can't see the full picture. Only God does. And he's revealed so much to us. More than revelation, he's given us himself. He shares in our humanity that we might share in his divinity. And in baptism, we are given the light and made to be lights to the world in and through Christ. And Pope Benedict sums up his first encyclical, Deus Caritas, as God is love, in this way. He says, Faith which sees the love of God revealed in the pierced heart of Jesus on the cross, cross gives rise to love. Love is the light and in the end only the only light that can always illuminate a world grown dim and gives us the courage needed to keep living and working. Love is possible and we are able to practice it because we are created in the image of God. To experience love and in this way to cause the light of God to enter into the world, this is the invitation I would like to extend with this present encyclical. End quote. As with the practice of his predecessor, Pope Benedict dedicates the conclusion of his document to the, to the Theotokos, the Mother of God, Mary Most Holy. Truly, each of the saints are a beautiful witness to the charity of God in every imaginable way. However, there's a preeminence to the holy charity of our Blessed Mother, the first disciple of her Holy Son, Jesus Christ. I highly recommend reading the entire conclusion, well, and the whole document, really, in full. But I'd like to draw what resonated most with me. I simply love the way Pope Benedict speaks about our Blessed Mother in everything that he writes. He says this, Mary's greatness consists in the fact that she wants to magnify God, not herself. She is lowly. Her only desire is to be the handmaid of the Lord. She knows that she will only contribute to the salvation of the world if rather than carrying out her own projects, she places herself completely at the disposal of God's initiatives. How often do you and I carry out our own projects, right, without putting ourselves at the disposal of God's initiatives, or maybe maybe later, but how often do you and I carry out our own projects without deference to God? Mother Mary, form us, teach us. And the Pope goes on. He says, Mary is a woman who loves. How could it be otherwise? As a believer who in faith thinks with God's thoughts and wills with God's will, she cannot fail to be a woman who loves. We sense this in her quiet gestures, as recounted by the infancy narratives in the gospel. We see it in the delicacy with which she recognizes the need of the spouses at Cana and makes it known to Jesus. We see it in the humility with which she recedes into the background during Jesus' public life, knowing that the son must establish a new family and that the mother's hour will only come with the cross, which will be Jesus' true hour. When the disciples flee... Mary will remain beneath the cross. Later at the hour of Pentecost, it will be they who gather around her as they wait for the Holy Spirit. Yes, Mary was there through it all. And by her, yes, the word of God took flesh, provided by her own body. Even despite her prominence and grandeur, 
The humility of the Theotokos is led by love. She loves with the love of God flowing through her as a perfect vessel, and she loves with a human motherly love. The Pope goes on. He says, Mary, virgin and mother, show us what love is and whence it draws its origin and is constantly renewed power. To her, we entrust the church and her mission in the service of love. And so here, Pope Benedict ends with a a prayer to the Theotokos, which I would like to end today's podcast with as well. And so please join me in spirit and praying. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God, you have given the world its true light. Jesus, your Son, the Son of God. You abandoned yourself completely to God's call, and thus became a wellspring of the goodness which flows forth from him. Show us Jesus. Lead us to him. Teach us to know and love him so that we too may become capable of true love and be fountains of living water in the midst of a thirsting world. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, this two-parter on Deus Caritas S, the first encyclical from Pope Benedict. Uh, in the future, I will be looking at a couple of the other ones, uh, namely Space Salvi on Hope, and then also Lumen Fide, which is uh, the first encyclical of Pope Francis, technically, but it was written by Pope Benedict. So if you've enjoyed this, I highly recommend, if you haven't already, go subscribe to my Substack at willwritecatholic.substack.com. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or some other uh, outlet for podcasts. And that way you'll, you'll get the emails, but you'll also get the written version of these. I know there was a lot of quotes in, uh, in what I presented today. So if you'd like to see those, head on over there and, uh, and check that out. So I hope you've enjoyed. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, if you'd like to send a comment, question, or you have some confusion about something, please email me at willwritecatholic. or will.write.catholic at gmail.com. And again, the Substack link is willwritecatholic.substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. And feel free to share this with your friends and family, and I'd greatly appreciate it. And uh, just as we do always, let's, let's end with a glory be. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen.